Bonjour, bonjour, and welcome to another episode of EveryoneHatesMarketers.com, the marketing podcast for marketers, founders, and tech people who are just sick of shady, aggressive marketing. I'm your host, Louis Grenier. In today's episode, we're going to talk about user research, why it matters, and how to do it on a small budget. So I'm super happy that my guest today is the co-founder and managing partner of AG Consult. She worked with organizations like Ghent University, the European University Institute, and the Red Cross to create their online strategy. She also does user research for companies like Daikin, Atlas Copco, Bridgestone, and Orange to find out their website and online strategy and how they can be improved. She also developed a series of web writing courses that she taught at commercial and non-profit organizations. And finally, she shared her knowledge on conferences worldwide, in particular one uh, called CXL, uh, CXL Live, Conversion XL Live, where she was rated the number one speaker uh, at the conference. And this is why she's in the show today, because I always like to look at ratings in conferences, because I, I just steal their speaker then, because I know they'll be good. Uh, so I'm super, super happy to have you else on board before I butcher your last name, I'm going to ask you to pronounce it for the listeners. Here goes. Arts. Okay. So else Arts. There you go. I said it. Close enough. Close yeah. enough. Not good, but close enough. Mm -hmm. So what is user research? What is user research? Um, well, that's a very broad question. I would define it as finding out what your prospects and what your clients really want Uh, and what their uh, emotions are, what their hopes are, what their fears are, what is what is their drive to either yeah uh, buy or not buy the product or the service you're selling, what is really in their minds, what is going on in their lives. And why is it so important to, to care about those people? Because basically, if you don't care about those people, then I don't think you're going to do well as a business. I think it's pretty much common sense and also just good business sense to care about the people that you want to sell to because if you don't know what really drives them if you don't know what their what their problems are what their expectations are of your product then i don't think you will be able to sell it to them really well but surely all that matters is profit no in this world oh 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 louis stop breaking my heart man I mean, I know you're cold, but that cold, really? No, profit is good. Profit is healthy. And, you know, profit is what <laughs> keeps the business going. But really caring about your users, uh, empathizing with them, one, it is good for profit. And two, let's not, let's not be sleazy. Let's not be those guys, you know? So, no, if you have a good product then getting to know your users, that's a great combination, I think, to, to really do well online. So you said, uh, let's not be like those guys. What are you referring to? What are those guys? Well, people who want to sell uh, or market to you absolutely relentlessly, who will yeah, beat down your door with their offers, who will not stop emailing you, even if you have, you know, made it very clear that you do not want their business. People who bombard you with all kinds of dirty pop-ups or overlays. And I have nothing against the occasional overlay. If it offers me something based on um, what I'm doing on the website at the time, if it's offering me something that it has Um, done some research into that you know is of value to me, then sure, offer me something in an overlay, but don't yeah, be overly aggressive about it. And I think the overly aggressive part is very often in the way, not just when the pop-up appears, although that certainly plays a part, you know, I don't want to see a pop-up right when I enter a website and, you know, subscribe to our newsletter and get 10% off. I don't know if I want your dirty socks, uh, you know, um, but Also, the way the, the messages are worded, um, that can sometimes really make all the difference between a pop-up or an overlay that is appreciated by a user and one that, yeah, really leaves a bit of a nasty taste in your mouth. Right. So just to be clear, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate. Um, You're me, not? <laughs> trust me, all, all, all that matters is people at the end of the day. Um, 
But a lot of people will say that. And another question that came up, and I actually that, that I wasn't planning to ask you, but uh, that popped out into my mind. A lot of people, when we explain this type of point of view, whether in my in the business I work for Hodger or in my personal Vendetta against shitty marketing, um, mm -hmm. they say, yeah, it's all well and good, this vision of like taking care of people and listening to them and not seeing them. But what if the business is in the shit and there's like... We need, we need to make money. Like we need to say, we need to make money or else we won't survive. It's not about people first then in this instance. It is, it is because it, that's the whole point. It's like that saying, you know, you know, that saying like for your personal well-being, um, do exercise at least half an hour a day. If you're super stressed, do it for an hour a day because that will help you. If you are not doing well as a business, very often that is precisely because you are not listening to your potential customers. It is because you are not paying attention to them. And it is because you are trying to sort of impose your will upon yeah, God knows who, because people will leave you in a hurry. So I think that is a, that is a very, well, a very old school and just simply yeah backwards way of looking at things you can't force people to buy a product you can't force people to like you to make sure people like you you have to invest in uh, in them as well and what i find uh to be the tr to be true most of the time is that there's a strong correlation between how shitty a product or service is and how aggressive <laughs> the marketing is because uh, the, mm -hmm. the more the product is good, the less you need to do shady, aggressive marketing because the product sells itself, word of mouth is the, the first layer, like things happen, they talk to each other. And then you just, as a marketer, you surf on its wave. You don't just try to create a fake wave. Uh, but the more you have a bad product and the more you have to really force yourself to sell it and, and all of that. So that's an interesting way to look into it as a... So we want to talk about user research and how to do that uh, mm -hmm. on a budget. But before, I just want to ask you, can you describe like the type of activities that user research entails? And then I'm going to ask you about the biggest misconceptions, the biggest reason why people think, ah, I don't want to do that. Mm. Well, I think user research, depending on how broadly that you describe it, can entail a lot of things. Like you can do um, quantitative user research. And that can include surveys with close questions, or that can include like looking at uh, your Google Analytics. Um, there's qualitative research. And for me, you can also do qualitative research via surveys if you ask the right questions. And if you ask open questions, of course, there is moderated user testing in there. And let's not forget the the heat maps, the user session recordings. Those are also, for me, all great uh, tools for uh, user research, like other online user testing methods. I'm a big fan of the Optimal Workshop suite of tools myself as well, more for information architecture user research because uh, they have tree testing, cart sorting, I love first click testing, five second testing. So some of the things are a mix between research and sometimes validating a hypothesis, especially those last two, I would say, the first click testing, the A-B testing. But the all of the other stuff, depending on the kind of uh, project that you're working on and the stage uh, that the project is in can be very valuable and valid methods of research. So when you talk about those methods uh, to, to really extract what people are thinking uh, qualitatively most, uh, most of the time, what are the kind of the biggest objections or misconceptions that people tend to tell you? Uh, one of them, maybe you won't plan to mention that, but one of them is, oh, people don't respond to surveys. That's something I, we, we hear all the time. I hear all the time as well. Yeah. Well, I would say that people don't respond to bad surveys. There is a, we run a number of surveys, especially basically every information architecture project that we start and a lot of our um, conversion optimization projects as well. We start with what we call a top task survey because we want to find out sometimes who's visiting the website, um, target audience, and what is the purpose of their visit to this website today. And we get um, response rates of up to 10, 15% on this survey, which is, if you know anything about online surveys, not bad. 
Um, but this completely depends on the site that you're running them on. This is, we get those on sites where there's a very good relationship between the visitor and the organization, the company who runs the website. The bigger, uh, yeah, fans that you have, <laughs> the more, uh, the higher response rates that we see. We see the worst response rates, and I'm, I'm sorry if there are any B2B marketers out there, but we see the worst response rates on B2B sites. For us, for that type of survey, I'm happy if I see 3.5% response rate, but for B2C and we work a lot with also like um, cities and uh, communities, uh, nonprofits, Phew, response rates can absolutely skyrocket. And there's a definite correlation between, you know, how, yeah, how does your audience feel about you? Any other misconceptions or objections that you can hear uh, people mention to you when you mention user research as a, as a way to grow the business? Um, yeah, a lot of people think you can just skip that step because they think that they, um, they, they, they know things about their customers, like they know a lot of social demographic stuff. And very often that stuff, well, doesn't really help you sell all that much because what you need to know about your audience is not so much whether they're 25 or 28 or whether they are male or female or whatever. No, you need to know why is this person looking into the solution that I'm offering them? What exactly do I need to tell them about my product, my service to convince them? And what are the, yeah, what are, what are basically the, the fears that I have to take away or who are my competitors and, and how can I position myself against them, uh, for example? But so, yeah, no, the, you really need to know a lot more about your audience than just the basic social demographic shit. Is there anything else that springs to mind before we go into this step-by-step -step together? Oh my God, dude. Um, uh, I, I opened one of my talks um, uh, at uh, Conversion Hotel where, <laughs> in the Netherlands, which is a great conference, by the way. It's coming up in November. Um, I opened that uh, with a sort of tirade against people who uh, discredit user testing moderated user testing. And this is also something that is, well, and the, the sad thing is I, I kind of understand <laughs> because when you do user testing bad, it's a crap method. But the so point is, can you define what it is? Because I'm not everyone will, will know what moderated user testing is. Ah, okay. There we go. Um, well, moderated user testing is where you basically invite potential users of your product or existing users of your product to attend one-on-one -on -one sessions and you sit them down behind your laptop or desktop, uh, tablet, whatever. You have a moderator who asks them to perform tasks on your website or your app to really try to observe real user behavior. This is different from interviews where you ask people's opinions User testing, moderated user testing, you're after the observation of user behavior and in a one-on-one -on -one setting. So that's that. And now what I get a lot as an argument against it is that it's not, that it's not scientific enough um, or that you, you, don't get, you, get, you don't get good data with that. And the point is, if you do it wrong, you're absolutely right. You don't get good data. You don't get good information out of user testing, but you don't get good data out of your Google Analytics if the setup is wrong. You don't get good data out of uh, heat maps if you don't know what you're looking for. It's the same as with anything, but I feel there's a much greater false sense of security that people have with quantitative research than with qualitative research. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I, I'm not going to try to name the psychological principle behind that because I'm going to fail miserably. But the stats appear to be true when you say someone like 25.3 percent of people said that it appears to be true in your head. But yes. if you say three people told me that, you're like, oh, three yes. people, that's nothing. No, excuse yes. me, those are three people, and they're more likely if they fit your demographic and your persona. Yeah they are likely to be representative of the full sample. Um, so I agree with you as well. There's a great uh, episode we did with, um, I'm going to forget the name now, uh, the CEO of the Buyer Persona Institute, actually, which is an interesting, mm -hmm. uh, an interesting company. 
And the, the, the same point was made about demographic data, such as who gives a shit about I'm 28 yeah. and I do that yeah. and do that. What matters is why I'm doing it. What matters is what I'm looking for. What type of pain am I suffering from? And that's a real persona, a real bio persona. Um, and qualitative data is so important for that. So mm-hmm. I always say, you know, if, you, if you're able to do five user tests with people and truly look at what they do, but also how they feel and their face and their action, that's going to open so much more insight than any reports on Google Analytics because you're missing the the empathy. You're missing the the human to human connection, and that's what I believe. Like this is when good things happen usually. Um, so, how to do that? That's kind of the subject of today's episode. How to do user research? How to leverage and get insight, even if we don't have a huge budget, right? Mm-hmm. And we are talking about. To be clear, in a digital context, in a website context, to simplify things, we're not trying to do user tests on, on real life product or anything, but uh-huh. more of a website uh-huh. type scenario. So when, when you are working with a new client and, and let's say don't have a lot of budget or anything like this, what are the typical steps you take in order to do user research? Well, if they don't have a, a lot of budget, you could go for, well, I, I personally really like and I always push for, haha, uh, in-person user testing. Because when you have a person sitting next to you, there is just very often so much more they're also uh, willing to tell you. They're they're automatically more comfortable. It's it's just a much more natural conversation. I, I, I love talking to you like this, Louis, but... To be fair, it would be much better if we were sitting at a bar having a beer. This is pretty much the same with user testing. The closer you get to your test participants, the better it is. Now, I understand that, you know, getting people to your office or maybe the client's office, that can involve, you know, that involves a bit of organization. But remote user testing um, takes away that barrier. And well, as long as you have your webcam on so you can actually see each other, it's very important to always, I find, see the test participant's face because it says so much. It says whether they're bored or not. It says whether they're, you know, whether they're really having trouble with something. If they're sighing or frowning, that's, that those are very important things to pick up on. But so basically, you can do user testing with just a Zoom or go to meeting. Or if you don't need to, if you don't want to record it, don't need to record it, I'd say try to record it uh, with the, with the, with Skype. Um, So that way, you take away a lot of the effort on your side and on the user side to participate in the test. So I think that's a that's that's a very cheap way to do it. You could also just basically if you know where your test participants are, just go out and try to well, try to find them is a, is a bad word if you know where they are, but you know what I mean. Um, this is a tricky one because it's very important that you always test with the right people. Like um, what you said earlier, you know, you can really learn a lot if you get just do a user test with five people. I love hearing you say that because it is just completely true. The point is, though, you need to get the right people in. And then again, we're not talking about demographics. We're talking about people who are actually interested in your product. And when you do that, and I'd basically invite any business to do that, do that. Go out uh, and, and, and talk to, to five people. Go out and have five people do the tasks that are most important and that you want your users to do on, on your website. And just observe. This is another very important thing. Don't feel the need to interrupt uh, too soon or to ask too many questions. Observe. That's very important as yeah, well. Yeah, and don't try to sell anything. So oh, God, no. There's a lot of time where, like, yeah, it's difficult to remove your salesman hat or your marketer's hat and to put yeah. a kind of a journalist observer hat. But it's so important, isn't it? And instead of asking leading question, like I just asked, is it so important, isn't it? Open-ended question is much more, is much more, uh, much better, isn't it? Um, so <laughs> uh, I've done it twice now. So that's two examples of leading questions where you want some, someone to tell you something and they're probably going to be forced to say yes, uh, if you're putting okay. it the right way. But open-ended questions are the opposite. It's, it's uh, like, why did you just do this? Or that kind of uh, questions, right? So let me go back to one thing you mentioned. I know for a fact, because a lot of listeners uh, emailed me about this particular thing, we talked about research, user research, and talking to people in the past, right? It's not the first time. And most of the time what happens is I get emails saying, 
it's all well and good, but how do I do that? Like, what is the first step? How do I contact those people? What do I, what do I tell them? How, how will I convince them to spend time with me? You know, w- w- what's the value there for them? Mm-hmm. Well, um, I think depending on what your, what your business is, um, you could try and find them amongst your actual clients. I always think it's uh, it's very interesting to test uh, to do user testing with people who have just recently be- become clients, um, and also potential clients, maybe people who have signed up for your uh, free trial. If you're if you're SaaS, uh, if your uh, regular services or products, have a look on a fora where your product is being discussed and put out put out a message there that you're looking for people to participate in user research. Give them, again, if you're sauce, maybe give them a couple months free of your product or give them a coupon for, um, for Amazon for, for $10 or 10 euros. You'll find that a lot of people are, you know, quite happy to participate. Try and I would always say, try and make that monetary value not the main reason for them to participate, because then you might just get people who, you know, want to make a quick buck and think, oh, I'll tell them what I think. And, you know, there's $50 in it for me. Try and always make sure that you get, uh, yeah, the right profile of people in who are interested in doing it, not for the money. Have you watched the show called uh, Silicon Valley? Oh, God, yeah. I love Silicon Valley. <laughs> so so if, if you're listening to this episode right now, and if you've watched uh, Silicon Valley, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, Silicon Valley is basically the TV show about this startup um, trying to make it in, in Silicon Valley. And it's all the cliche, but it's so fucking funny because it's so true. Um, and there's many scenes in there about user tests, user testing, like in-person user tests, so the panels or whatever it's uh, called. Ah, uh, Louis, please right. don't make that mistake, man. Yeah, oh, yeah. so... I'm do not, not, not say this in the same sentence. It's no, not the same thing. Focus group. It's a hilarious scene. Yeah, yeah. So focus group. Yeah. And it's like a scene where they go through each individual and ask them, you know, whether they like the product and everyone in the, in the room says that they hate it. And, yeah. and then the moderator would name, um, else Louis, Guillaume, John, Sean, Rana. He would name every single person in the group and say that they don't, uh, that they agree with the statement. Anyway, I think it's a good point to make user test. In-person user test is not the same thing than focus groups. And I can see, you can't see that if you're listening to this episode, but I can see Alice is losing her shit right now. She's losing it. She really wants to like punch the screen. So, so tell us what the difference between user tests and, and focus group and why you should probably avoid the latter. Yeah. Well, see, I think of focus groups as doing market research. And I think doing market research is is something completely different from doing user research. Market research is, and see, I don't know a lot about market research, so I'm not going to actually say a lot about it. I just know that for user research, for finding out whether people can use your product, can use your website, and what their, what their difficulties are, focus groups are just crap because one, when, 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 when did surfing become a group activity? No, it doesn't happen. You don't think, oh, let me check out whether, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to try this product. Oh, let's invite all my friends over so we can, we can do this together. No, Um, it's one-on-one is very important. Also, when you have that group dynamic going, seriously, put me in a focus group and I am pretty sure I will manipulate these other people to basically say what I want them to say, because this can happen. You can you can have a loud mouth in there and who will just basically drown out all the other voices. No, 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 no. Focus groups are also, again, about opinions and not about facts. User testing is about gathering facts. So how do you conduct a proper user test? Haha. Well, you would you would a lot of people think it's it's very easy and it is not because everything basically rests with as, as far as I'm concerned the quality uh, and the experience of the test moderator. 
that uh, you have to, and I think this is um, something that Jared Spool, he's written, a, he, he's written a great article about this, about the multiple personalities that a user test moderator should have. And he says you should have three personalities. And one is that you have to be a flight attendant. You have to be somebody who is personable. You have to put your test participant at ease, make them feel comfortable sitting next to you. Basically, make them feel as if they can do whatever they would do at home, because that's what we're after, natural user behavior. Second of all, you have to be a sort of a sportscaster. You have to be sort of a, a reporter because it's not just you doing the user testing. Very often you're recording it or there are people um, following the test in an observation room and you're sitting as a moderator, you're sitting quite close to your test participants so you can actually see everything that's happening. But, you know, people in the observation room, they can't. So sometimes you have to point out things that the uh, that are happening on the screen or that the test participant is saying, but that don't make sense without context. So the people in the observation room can, you know, actually get with it. And you can't forget, you're not sitting there having a chit chat with someone. No, there are research questions that you want answered in this user test session. And this is always something to keep in mind. And this is something very important. Whenever you set a task for a user, I, always, I, I try to always say set a task and not ask a question. You set a task for the user to do is to keep in mind, why am I, why am I asking this? What am, what am I trying to find out here on this page? Why am I doing this? And so those are Jared's three personalities, but I've recently, I've recently added a fourth. I haven't told Jared this, maybe I should. Um, but my fourth personality is Switzerland. Like you have said already, you can't ask leading questions in it. You can't ask, so do you like the search feature? Uh, and especially not with a look of expectation on your face, because then, you know, your test participant is probably thinking like, oh, maybe she designed it. Maybe she made it. Oh, I better say I like it. No. Open questions and, yeah, take a step back. Let your test participant do the talking. That's a very important bit. So what do you want to find out typically in a user test? Let's go through an actor, a proper example. You mentioned SaaS software as a service a few times. So let's yeah. take a proper example of a SaaS website. Traditionally, you have a homepage, a pricing page, a um, trial sign-up page, and then you move on to the product, right? So that's the traditional funnel, traditional journey. What do you typically in detail, like what do you want to find out? Like what's the usual questions that you want answered? Well, I, I think it, uh, basically when we're talking about that, uh, I would say that on the homepage, you would want to make sure that, duh, here come the basics, that what you are selling is clear. And this sounds like extremely basic, but it's not. I see so many homepages where I think, and what exactly is your product? What exactly does it do for me? That in itself homepage material question that you want asked. Um, then to see whether any concerns that this that your test participant might have about this product, are they answered, yes or no? And are they answered in the right place? Or do they have to go look for them on, God forbid, an awful frequently asked questions page, for example? No, all your frequently asked questions should be answered in your copy. Basically, you should answer them before your test participant even thinks about asking them. You should and try to anticipate on that. So those are things I think you should look out for in your homepage or your product landing page. Then, of course, clarity of your pricing. Uh, again, <laughs> very basic, but my God, there are so many confusing, confusing pricing models out there. Um, so to understand what the difference is between, for example, different flavors of a product that you're offering. Um, and then, of course, your sign up process. Is that is that painless? Does that is that according to what the test participant expects as well? Because sometimes and this, this might sound strange, but sometimes a sign-up process is too short. Sometimes a sign-up process that is too short also goes against, you know, what a user expects and, and, and doesn't leave a good feeling. So testing all of those things, all of those steps um, is very important. And very often when you go into a user test, because usually you don't do it out of the blue, 
you already have a number of questions that have come up in other types of research. Maybe you have seen in your analytics that, you know, there's a big drop off at a certain point. Why is that? Because exactly that is the question that analytics doesn't answer for you. Why? And then you have to zoom in on that page during the test and, and try and find out, okay, what's holding you back here? And I think that's also the difference between thin data that you get from Google Analytics. You see, okay, this is a problem for a lot of people. You know, 76% of people drop off here. But that's the only thing you know. So many people drop off. We're in user testing. And true, you might only have five people. But if three people out of those five drop off off that page, and, you know, they probably will. But then, you know, oh, okay, it is unclear to them that they have to actually fill out this form because the label of the field is wrong. Oh, there's an error message that sucks donkey balls. Alrighty-ho. It could be all of those things. You know, it's very often, also during user testing, you told me I could swear, Louis. Oh, um, yeah, keep going. I'm going to swear now. Um, so it could be all of those things. And that's the beauty of user testing. It gives you thick, rich data. It gives you a lot of answers to your why question. And that is, yeah. Just beautiful. Yeah, in my experience, traditional web analytics solutions gives you the what. It's easy. Mm. I mean, it's easy. No, sometimes it's not that easy to know yeah. the what. But user research and, and qualitative data gives you the why. And the yeah. why is what matters at the end of the day. So that's user test. That's one type of user research that you can do on a budget. Mm. We probably won't have a lot of time to go through many others, but perhaps you can pick your second kind of favorite or the one that is maybe something that people can try tomorrow and get a lot of value out of? Um, gosh, 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 gosh. It's, it's, it's a bit of a toss up for me between um, surveys and user session recordings. Let's do surveys. Um, okay. Uh, surveys. I really like um, the right small surveys on the right page at the right time which basically means that you ask a question that is very targeted to the page that your test that your that your user is on and that is also correlated with the behavior they're exhibiting so for example um, we did uh, a survey recently on a retail website client's uh, website of ours and and on the product detail page uh, we asked them what they thought was important to them in choosing uh, a particular uh, product because there's no point in asking them that on the homepage because they might be after a whole range of different product, uh, products. The same goes for um, asking people who are about to drop out of your funnel, you know, okay, if you're trying to leave, what is holding you back from request or sending a request for offer or from placing your order today? And getting the wording of those questions exactly right, getting the timing of that survey exactly right, that is where you get the value. I recently saw a survey on the website of on a project we're just starting and it was just so cute because they're using Hotjar and they're using the surveys and they asked, is there anything we can do to improve this website? <laughs> That's not the question you should ask. That is, that is a huge open question that puts the burden of thinking completely on your user. Also, it means that you think your users will tell you exactly what you need to change. No, your users will tell you what their problems are and you have to figure out the best way to fix that. So to go back to what you mentioned, because I know what you're talking about, uh, as you mentioned, I work for Hotjar, but to be clear, it's, it's not, this episode is not sponsored by Hotjar. Uh, at all. So those surveys, those are like on-page surveys. Uh, in Hotjar, mm. we call them polls, uh, but there are other ways to, to name them, mini surveys, on-page surveys, whatever. But you can imagine it's a small box that appear in on the website traditionally where the live chat is, that's usually where, 
and where you can ask open-ended questions or multiple like selecting questions. And you can even have logic where you answer one question and you're being brought to another one, uh, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera, right? So mm-hmm. I just wanted to explain a bit more in detail. So talk about talking about this, you mentioned a few already that are super interesting. So from your experience, what are the core, like if, if listeners listening to this right now want to implement that today on their website, what should be the type of question and the behavior, like the, the triggers that they should set up? What are the typical ones you would recommend? Well, I think um, trying to figure out why people are dropping off uh, at, at, at a certain point in, in your funnel is a very important one. And you can do that either on exit intent on desktop or time on page uh, on, uh, on mobile. And for that, you'd have to, again, look at your analytics and see what is my average time on page. What I also like to do is just I like to go to that page myself and time myself and see does that how does that stack up with the average time in Google Analytics? I find that very uh, well that a lot of a lot of marketers could do well to use their own website more. And not just look at it, because I know a lot of marketers like looking at their website and commenting on the looks of the website. But really, you should go through every funnel, um, every every sign up flow, every every order flow at least once a month yourself. And and then you know when and then you, you will also know when is the right time to put this question in front of people and what is the right uh, timing for that. So what question do you ask uh, exactly like when when it comes to figuring out why people are dropping off at a certain point, for example? Um, For example, you could ask, what's the main thing from holding you back from? And this could either be requesting an offer or completing your purchase today. And sometimes that is uh, I'm still checking out other uh, I'm still checking out other vendors. I'm, I'm still in the process of deciding or. You know, people, what we've had in, 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 in one case was that like, oh, I can't choose. <laughs> this is, this is, this is super interesting. Um, you have so many nice products. This was a company that sold watches and, um, and glasses. I, I can't decide. Right. And yeah, choice paralysis. Yeah. The uh, paradox it, of choice. The more yeah. you give, the more you give options in front of someone, the, the less likely this person is to, to make a choice. Yes, Exactly. And, and this is actually, a, a well, we, we noticed this problem because we did that survey and then we actually fixed it um, because we, we added a sort of a reassuring message in the, in the cart. We said, you made a great choice to sort of oh, take away that fear of the user to sort of say, oh, okay, yeah, well, well if they think I've made a good choice, I, I bet I have. It's what you see. It's basically pretty much what Booking.com does when they put uh, a green V when you have, oh my God, correctly entered your first name. Um, they, they just give you pats on the back the whole time, and it helps to give users a pat on the back. It helps to give, it helps to make your, you know, your 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 potential clients feel good about themselves. So positive reinforcement can really work. So that's one and super interesting. Definitely identifying drop off and asking people uh, anything. Is there anything holding you back from doing the action that we want them to, to perform today? Yep. What other scenario, what other type of question do you like to ask? Well, I think another one that is that is very interesting is asking people who have ordered right after they've ordered uh, what their main um what tipped them over into into becoming a customer? What's the main reason for shopping with us today and not one of our competitors? Because when you know what drives really your fans, then you you also know like, oh, okay, these are really, you know, these strong points that we have. Because very often what a company thinks are its USPs are not necessarily the same as what your clients might think are your USPs. And they, those answers at that point as well might surprise you. And this is, again, a survey that you can either do on page, on the thank you page, you know, and this is a great moment because usually people are have just bought from you. 
I don't know what you're like when you've just bought something, but a lot of people are on a little bit of a high. You know, I feel guilty. Yeah. No, not, you don't feel guilty, Louis. You feel happy that you bought yourself something good. Um, and so they're, 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 they're happy with you at this point. Otherwise, they wouldn't have bought it. And so they're also quite willing to answer this question right then and there on that page. Obviously, you could also, you know, send it separately in an email, but I would go do it right there on that page. Agreed. That's a nice one as well. So this is something that traditionally is not being asked that much. I think as human beings, we are really good at spotting problems. We are quite bad at spotting things that are good and trying to double down on them. So I like that. So why are people dropping off? But also on the other hand, what made those successful customers to be successful? What happened mm -hmm. in their head? What is the trigger? What key reasons uh, did they choose us over a competitor, as you said? Now, um, I like the number three. I always like to, to, to put three stuff. So you're going to have to pick another one, another example, another typical thing that could lead to a lot of value for our listeners. Okay. Um, well, this is not a survey that you can do... Um, on well it, it's not a survey that makes sense on every website but it's a survey that 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 we like to do in our information architecture projects and we call it the top task survey so basically ask people who are you and what is the main purpose of your visit to this website today because it helps get a good picture of who your yeah who your website visitors really are um, for a university that we worked for for example it's important to know what is the ratio between future students students staff and also what are they looking for um, and when you get that information and you can sort of correlate it with your Google Analytics that can be really interesting because people always say, uh, why do you need to do that survey? You know, who are you? What, what are you here for? Google Analytics tells you what they're here for. And I always say, no, Google Analytics tells you what they do. It doesn't tell you what they want to do. Sometimes what they want to do, you might not even have. Google Analytics will never tell you that, that you're missing content or that there is something that a lot of people are actually looking for, but won't pop up in your top pages in Google Analytics because it is just super hard to find. So very good methods to always, um, yeah, use in conjunction with each other. And I think that goes for pretty much all the user research techniques that, that we've already mentioned today. Um, a lot of them are, you know, you can use them on their own, but the point is if you use them together, and you put all the data together, that is when you get the really valid insights. And that is when you really know, oh, okay, this is how I should fix it. Uh, I think there's another reason why this type of, of poll or this type of questions to understand who are your website visitors is so important is, is the privacy side of things, right? So we have GDPR uh, that happened a few months ago at the, the time where the episodes, this episode is published. Uh, I, I, we can feel in this world today's day and age that privacy, user privacy is getting more and more important. And you do not want to try to collect data against people's will. And it's always better if they tell you and they consent to give you this information. So mm -hmm. we, if you do a mini kind of survey on the homepage, this is, we, I used to do that when I had my own uh, commercial rate optimization agency. Um, we used to use a mini survey on the homepage of our clients and asking the exact question, who are you and what are you looking for today or why are you mm. on this website today? Mm -hmm. And usually the answers on this compared to what we got from analytics was completely different. Or at least, mm -hmm. as you said, we knew what people were doing on analytics on a very high level, which page, mm -hmm. how long, but it certainly didn't tell us what they were doing on the page itself or how long mm -hmm. they stayed, what they did, what they didn't like, et cetera, and who they were, mm -hmm. what they were trying to achieve. And so mm -hmm. that gave us a, a very nice picture of the situation as well. So I think that's a pretty good picture of like user research on how to do that on a kind of a budget and in a simple mm -hmm. way. Uh, so thanks so much else for, for going through this exercise with me. I know it's not easy. Yeah. Uh, I think you were really efficient. Um, so I'm curious because I can feel you're very a very authentic person. Uh, before I go through the kind of the last questions that I always ask my 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 guest, what has been the biggest marketing fuck up in your career so far? Oh gosh, the 
biggest marketing fuck up in my career so far. I couldn't possibly just choose one, Louis. It's just there's I, I can I can see a reel of failure passing before my eyes right now. I've been doing this for a long time, you know. So no, I think um, th there's actually not one huge thing that stands out. What I will admit to is making lots of mistakes. And I think that's only normal because making mistakes is also how you learn. Thank God I make fewer mistakes these days, but that's also because I've been doing it for longer. <laughs> it's quite as simple as that. So I'm, I'm not one of those embrace failure and fail forward type of people. Um, but I'm also not, I am also not a big believer in, in punishing, uh, punishing every little fuck up. So, you know, I've made mistakes just, uh, just like everybody else. And, um, thank God I, I learned, I've learned from them and I keep learning from them. <laughs> So I know listeners are not going to be satisfied with this answer. You're going to have to pick. You're going to have to pick one mistake. I'm going to have to pick one mistake. Yeah. Um, oh gosh. <sighs> I'm very bad at this. Biggest marketing fuck up. Well, I think. Well, well, and this goes. This making the wrong choice of partner count. Because I think I feel like uh, we as a as a consulting agency should, you know, really be able to also pick good partners to work together with. And I have fucked up there very recently and choosing basically an advertising partner for ourselves that was completely not aligned with our values. And as a result, there was a campaign for our online training that I felt not very comfortable with. So that is, I consider that actually as much a failure of, of mine as, as I do of, of the partner we chose, because basically it was, it was our choice to go with them. So yeah, my God, you made me squirm, Louis. <laughs> Thanks for being transparent with us. I, I know people will enjoy this, this type of uh, insights. <laughs> that you're welcome so what do you think marketers should learn today that will help them in the next 10 years 20 years 50 years um well um i know there's a lot of emphasis on data-driven marketing right now and i'm i'm a huge fan of that let's be fair because it's very important this is why also user testing and user research is so important But what I think is a very underestimated skill is the psychological side of things and also copywriting, because I think that is something that AI is not going to take over in a hurry. Um, you know, analyzing data, I think, you know, machines might get better at that than, than we are. But really putting feeling into copy I don't know about that. Language is is something very, well, intrinsically human. And I think you need real emotion to write really convincing copies. So I would say psychology and copywriting. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's such a such a, dif a difficult thing to foresee. Hmm. Definitely in data analysis, I mean, computers are already much better than us. Uh, making decisions, it seems like they're also able to make decisions from data. But yes, the feeling, the emotions, we'll see. Who knows at this stage? Uh, but thanks for answering that. Uh, which brings me to the, the, the second question, um, which is, what are the top three resources you would recommend our listeners today? So that could be anything, podcast episode, podcast books, conferences, anything. Well, I think that for um, online trainings on digital marketing, you can't beat CXL Institute. They have online uh, trainings on a lot of topics ranging from conversion optimization, but also analytics, copywriting, and they just really find the best people to teach. So I think that's, that's just a great resource. When it comes to copywriting and getting really you know, deep down and dirty with it. I love copy hackers and Joanna Weeb as well. So I would check out copyhackers.com. 
And well, I would also basically, if you're interested in user testing, actual moderated user testing, and you want to find more about that, I'm going to refer to you to my old mentor, who is uh, basically Jacob Nielsen. A, a, he's the guy who introduced me to user testing. And I know he's not hip, but the resources on his website, nngroup.com, sorry, you, you still can't beat that. There is just absolute gold there. Well, thanks so much, Els. You definitely didn't uh, suck donkey balls today. Um, I was waiting. I was waiting. I was waiting to say that. Uh, It's been a pleasure talking to you, uh, and I'm pretty sure people listening also enjoyed it quite a lot. Um, Where can listeners connect with you and learn more from you? Well, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter Twitter handle is else underscore acts, or you can always uh, drop me an email at else at agconsult.com. It saves the arts bit. Else at agconsult.com. So yeah. All right. Once again, thank you so much. Thank you very much. And that's it for another episode of everyonehatesmarketers.com. Thank you so much for listening. I'm super, super grateful. I'd love for you to consider subscribing to my daily newsletter, Monday to Friday, called Stand the Fuck Out Daily. I send very short, hopefully interesting, surprising, shocking, entertaining content to help you stand the fuck out. It's at everyonehatesmarketers.com. You can subscribe for free and obviously unsubscribe whenever you want. I'm just going to read a couple of emails that I got recently as a reply. Juma said, your content attacks the mind primarily, which is such a good thing because most of us are skilled at what we do, but we don't have the courage to do it our way. Mark, who just subscribed a couple days before, said, this is my first issue of your newsletter. Love it. Glad I subscribed. Brianna said, I just realized this morning that my email habit is now to one, skim through the list, two, select all unread industry email except yours, three, delete and don't think twice, four, quickly skim yours. Amy said, also loving the new content that's coming from you. It feels really lovely. Candle said, I like your writing a lot. It really resonates. There's so much bullshit out there. It's good to touch the authentic. And Chloe said, where is the I fucking love this email button? Brilliant. I hope you subscribe. You'll be joining more than 14,000 subscribers at this stage, which is crazy. It's the size of a small stadium. Anyway, thank you so much. See you on the other side.